But if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 14, and let's pray together. Father, because you are the one true God, we trust in you. We are gathered together this morning because you have made yourself known and you have revealed to us personally that you are the one who is to be worshipped, that you created us for your own purposes and glory, and that yes, we have, we have sinned and rebelled and wandered our own way, and that we're incapable of restoring ourselves to you, but that you sent the God-man, Jesus Christ, to walk in our steps, but to do it perfectly. And after having lived a perfect life, he died on a cross, shed his blood for our sin, and rose again so that in him we can be made clean and restored to you, our sins being forgiven because of his payment. We thank you that we're gathered here to worship that king and to learn from that king. So it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today, we celebrate what is known in Christendom as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week or Passion Week. It's the week memorialized in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ that climaxes with his crucifixion on Friday and culminates with his resurrection on Sunday. So we're taking a break from our exposition of the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles to focus today on a text that took place during Holy Week. And I decided that I'd like to look into the Gospel of Mark for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that I haven't taught much from Mark concerning Holy Week, and I enjoy preaching new texts so that I'm edified and challenged to grow. So the section we're looking at today is from Mark 14 which struck me in a unique way as I was studying it this time through. And then secondly, Mark's gospel is based upon the authority and testimony of the apostle Peter, who communicated the words and deeds of Jesus to John Mark. And we're in a section of Acts where Peter is again the lead character, and we will soon be introduced to how Peter comes to know a young man by the name of John, whose other name was Mark. So he will be another sometimes companion of Paul and Barnabas. That might be the thing you're most, that you know most about Mark or that John Mark is perhaps infamous for is that when he deserted uh, Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey, then uh, Paul did not want to take him the next time and he and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas parted ways. But we know about the growth of John Mark that he was later again accepted became a companion of the Apostle Peter as well, and then based on Peter's authority and uh, description of the teaching and life of Jesus, John Mark wrote this gospel. So today in Mark 14, 1 through 42, our goal will be for us to understand the detail with which Jesus knew exactly what he was walking into so that you will know him and love him for what he did for you, responding in faith and worship. Secondly, 
I want us to see the depth with which Jesus knows and cares for his own so that we can trust him to sustain us as we walk with him in Christian discipleship, especially in sacrificial service and suffering. Mark 14 is is a very long chapter. It has 72 verses. We're going to be looking at just the first 42. So yes, this is going to be a a fast-paced, just like John Mark's gospel is fast-paced, this sermon is going to be fast-paced. So hold on to your pew, and uh, you'll walk out of here with your hair blown back. So we're going to look at these, in these first 42 verses, of I'm calling this section Preparation for Impending Suffering. Immediately after this follows Jesus' betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection to end the gospel. So this is getting ready for that impending suffering. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the religious leaders prepared to arrest Jesus by stealth. You're going to discover that in my outline here for you this morning, we're talking about all the ways in which either someone else or Jesus is preparing. So first, the religious leaders prepared to arrest Jesus by stealth. The gospel, the evangelist gives orienting information to the audience of the setting so that we know the temporal and theological place where we are. And we come to know of a plot to arrest Jesus secretly. Mark 14, 1 and 2 says this, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The Jews used the term Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread interchangeably, by this time to refer to the feast week that was commanded by God to commemorate how God brought them up out of slavery in Egypt. Together they formed an eight-day celebration that began with the Passover, that was day one, and then, then seven days of unleavened bread. And they started calling these either Passover or unleavened bread. Although the chief priests and the scribes were desperate to be rid of Jesus, they demonstrate, as we saw when we were going through Luke's gospel, they fear Jesus' popularity with the people. So they evidently plan not, uh, they plan to not only find a way to arrest him by stealth, but also they're planning to wait until after the feast. We'll discover in these verses that that timetable will change because they have an assistant. Since Jesus has already predicted his death three times, Um, That's Mark 8.31, Mark 9.30, Mark 10.32. And even at times when he predicts his death, he names his perpetrators. This is Mark 8.31 as one of the examples. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite designation for himself because that comes from Daniel, that the Son of Man has all authority from God, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. So it's quite clear that Jesus knew that his enemies, who wrongly viewed themselves as God's instruments, were seeking to kill him. This is the second pattern you're going to see from me this morning. As we talk about these preparations, I want to talk to you about how much Jesus knew exactly what he was getting himself into And he did it anyways for you. 
Jesus knew that his enemies who wrongly viewed themselves as God's instruments were seeking to kill him. A foul plot is indeed afoot, but it does not catch Jesus unaware. Jesus is not unaware also of your suffering. Jesus is not unaware of your trial. Indeed, he has taught us in John 16, I have said these things to you, he was saying to his followers at, this on, at the Last Supper, which we're also going to talk about today. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus knew the suffering he was going to be enduring, and Jesus knows and understands your suffering. We'll talk about that again before we close. So to continue, this clear knowledge of their plans to kill him is only the beginning in our passage to demonstrate the depth with which Jesus understood what was coming and its purpose in God's plan. Therefore, next, Mark places here the episode of a worshiping woman who unknowingly prepared Jesus for burial while he was yet alive. Let's read beginning in verse 3, picking up where we stopped. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, so that's nearly an entire year's wages for a day laborer. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. From the Apostle John's gospel, we, we learn that this was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who themselves were from the town of Bethany, where, uh, and they were Jesus' friends whom he, he sometimes or perhaps often stayed with when he was in the region of Jerusalem, Bethany being just a couple of miles from the city. If we remember, Mary was the one who sat listening at Jesus' feet while Martha complained because she was so busy with hosting. But Jesus commended Mary's choice. So when we remember that, we're less surprised by this act of lavish worship from such a one as Mary. But the disciples are surprised, not by the anointing of a guest of honor, which was not uncommon practice, but by the expense and the excess of, of that which the woman used. Although others joined in, we learn from John also that Judas was the instigator of this complaint in John chapter 12. John wasn't concerned for the poor. John was concerned for his own greed. But the others chimed in after he started. Instead of chastising her, though, Jesus commends this act as a beautiful thing done in love for him. Again, undoubtedly a recognition of the intention of her heart. He isn't saying that they shouldn't give to the poor, 
but only that such is an opportunity they will always have helping the poor. But his departure is imminent. It's at this point in the section where we see Jesus knew the anointing kindness was in fact preparation for his impending burial. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You, as as a reader of the New Testament or of the Bible, you will also know that anointing was, in their culture, not only to um, anoint an honored guest, but if you think back to the Old Testament, anointing would have been uh, to recognize someone who's who's, uh, being commissioned for a specific purpose, like Aaron, when he became the priest, and when the, the kings were anointed for a purpose. And then you'll also recall that the Messiah is called the anointed one who is selected by God for a specific task. And not only do we learn that, the, that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, but he is more than a man. He is, yes, a man, but he is God come in human flesh. And so we remember that. And then on top of that, then Jesus tells us that this is for anointing his body for burial. And it isn't, isn't it precisely as Jesus said about this woman that with all four gospels recording the event, Mary's act of worship is told along with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the whole world really receives it. Because don't we make efforts to translate the Bible into every language necessary to reach all people with the good news of Jesus, and we begin with the Gospels of Jesus Christ? Before we move on then, I also, like we did at the, end, the close of the last section, make this application for you. Jesus is worthy of your highest earthly cost, and your heavenly reward will far outweigh your greatest sacrifice for him in this life. I'll say again, Jesus is worthy of your highest earthly cost, and your heavenly reward will far outweigh your greatest sacrifice for him in this life. By contrast to Mary's worship of Jesus, next in the passage, we see Judas prepared to betray Jesus. Verses 10 and 11, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This also evidently, as we said earlier, changes their timetable because Judas knows enough about Jesus' plans and where he can be found that they are able to arrest him at night in Gethsemane with only his closest followers around, the night of the Passover meal. As Mark's gospel clearly presents Jesus' universal call to discipleship, I'm putting this in context for you. Mark emphasizes Jesus' universal call to discipleship. So too, the author demonstrates that people accordingly divide themselves into either Jesus' followers or his opponents. The world remains divided along those same two lines. We can't have it both ways. We are either with him or we are against him. In spite of his proximity to the inner circle and the ministry of Jesus, Judas missed the true worth of the Lord, and he saw him as a means to his own earthly end. 
So he pitted himself against Jesus, colluding with his enemies, and so remained an enemy of God. The same is true for Mark's audience, the readers, for us. Discipleship is essentially a relationship with Jesus. So we cannot be right with God and be against Jesus on his terms, who he said he is. Now, after these three ways that others have been preparing or prepared, we also still have five ways that Jesus is doing the preparation, so we're going to have to pick up the pace even more. In Mark 14, 12 to 16, we see that Jesus prepared for a final Passover meal with his disciples. Two of the disciples kind of did the specific preparing, but Jesus is clearly the one orchestrating everything. Look at verse 12 first. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare to eat the Passover? Again, the first day of unleavened bread here would refer to the whole eight-day feast, meaning then that this day spoken of here is, is leading up to the night of the Passover Seder. Of the Passover, it might be helpful for you to know that representatives from each family would have the priest slaughter a lamb for them in the temple and then return with it to feed the whole family that night. So here this ends up being taken care of by two of his disciples, which we learned in Luke was Peter and John. Let's continue reading in verses 13 to 16 of Mark 14. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And, they, and there they prepared the Passover. So they were supposed to eat the Passover meal within the city walls of Jerusalem, and so some wealthy friend of Jesus provides a, a large upper room for them to meet. Here I simply want to take the time to point out the continuing theme of all that Jesus knew of this preparation for his impending suffering. Jesus knew the specific details in preparation for eating a final Passover meal with his disciples. We're going to say more about that Passover meal. So notice that this, this same theme continues even as Jesus prepared his disciples for the betrayal. Verses 17 to 21, this is concerning the betrayal, preparation for it. And when it was evening, he came with the 12, and they were reclining at table and eating. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And in the Jesus' time, they would be as um, incensed and uh, aghast at the fact that one of Jesus' closest companions is going to betray him. One who's fellowshipping at, at table with him. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him and to one another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. 
For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So clearly we see, as Scripture often references, that the sovereign work of God is in play, but so is the responsibility of man. Judas is responsible for what he does, even though God superintends and supersedes even our sinful will to accomplish his ends. And the disciples set out, oops, I went way back. (laughs) For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I'm convinced that in this broader context, it is at the very least insinuated that Jesus knew who and how he was being betrayed. But what's insinuated here in Mark is made abundantly clear in John's gospel. In John chapter 13, verses 26 to 30, we're not going to go there, but there we learn that Jesus said to Judas directly, what you are going to do, do quickly. Although the other disciples were less certain about why Jesus said this to him, Jesus knew precisely what was taking place. In fact, where we end today at verse 42 Jesus will say to the disciples, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand as Judas is coming. But before we get there, earlier this same evening, Jesus prepared his disciples for his sacrifice and his future departure. Verses 22 to 25, and as they were eating, this is also the institution of the Lord's Supper. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is the blood, or this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, there are a couple of other things I'll emphasize about this section when we take the Lord's table together at the close of the service this morning. But here's the first one I don't want you to miss. Jesus knew we needed him to be our perfect and permanent Passover lamb. Jesus knew that we needed him to be the perfect and permanent Passover lamb. You see, the gospel is the good news of the fulfillment of God's promises through the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son who came in human flesh to make provision by his death, resurrection, and his exaltation. He came to make provision for perfect and permanent restoration to God through faith in him. That's the gospel. God fulfilled his promises to rescue us himself, and he has done so through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we are incapable of doing, God does for us, and he has done so through Jesus. And now we see also, again, we'll come back to that, but we see also in verses 26 to 31, Jesus prepared his disciples for their failure and also for his resurrection. Verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And he said to them, 
you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Hey, listen, this wasn't true of them yet, but eventually it would be. Because Jesus would rise again, and because of their faith in him, they would receive the indwelling spirit. And they would be willing to die rather than deny Christ. But Jesus knew that his disciples would scatter in fear. Even the specifics of Peter denying to even know him. Jesus knew that until he had completed the work for which he had been sent, his followers were not yet prepared to be his representatives. Even the apostles needed his completed work and the indwelling Holy Spirit. In this section too, I want you to know that Jesus knew he would be raised to life. Peter says of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Remember, this is when he's standing before the Jews in Jerusalem. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He came to be a perfect sacrifice, but not to stay dead. It was not possible for him to stay dead. So that the opportunity is made available to you that when you die physically, you will not die eternally. And now Jesus prepared himself for impending suffering. Jesus prepared himself for impending suffering. Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, a garden near the Mount of Olives. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, the inner circle of the inner circle, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell down on the ground and he prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for just one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went and prayed, saying the same words. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. 
And he came a third time to them saying, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I only have time to give you three brief things to notice here. Jesus knew the cup of suffering that he had to drink in order to atone for sin and secure our forgiveness. Jesus knew the cup he had to drink for sin and to secure our forgiveness. Secondly, Jesus knew that the Father's will is best. Do you trust God the way that Jesus, who is in perfect communion with the triune Godhead, knew that he can trust the Father's will? That what God knows is best? I know that most likely because you're participating in a church family like this or even visiting with a church family like ours today that you know that God's word is the authority for our lives and that his way is indeed best. And so I ask you again to be submissive to what God says, knowing that what he says is best for us. And so we don't try to identify ourselves or claim who we are or what we think is best according to some standard that the world is saying to us. In fact, you will find nowadays that you will be called a bigot and you will be called wicked for saying, no, this is what God says and what God says is best. God knows what is best. He loves you and he cares for you. Whatever your sin struggle is, it does not have to identify you. You can have your identity in Jesus Christ and be called child of God so that with the Spirit indwelling you, you too can say, Abba, Father to God. And that is your identity. The will of God is best. Finally, Jesus knew his followers would need him. Jesus knew his followers would need to learn this same dependence upon God. When we preach this text going through Luke's gospel, that was our emphasis, that we should follow the prayerful dependence of Jesus. He knew that we would need to be like him in this. I can't. God can. The spirit is willing and the flesh is so weak. In conclusion, I just want to just, I mean, there's been lots of application, I know, but I want you to know that Jesus knows your need. Jesus knows that you need him in order to be right with God. So he suffered to accomplish that for you. If you are listening to the sound of my voice this morning, you need to know that the word of God says to you, that Jesus says to you, I did this for you. Won't you come to the Father? Jesus says, come to me. You are burdened by sin. You are burdened by your effort to be right with God. But come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, the call today is to respond to Jesus in faith and in worship. Jesus alone can prepare us for eternity. 
He alone makes provision to restore us to right relationship to God. Jesus knows your sin. Jesus knows your inability, so he died and he rose to save you. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. And now is the time to repent and believe the gospel. Jesus said in Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus lives now to secure your redemption. Repent and believe the gospel. Lastly, this morning, I want you to know that Jesus knows in order for you to follow through on his mission, especially through suffering, you must abide in him and follow his example of dependence. It's quite possible that the theme of Mark's gospel is that, yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus is also truly human. And it's quite possible, though, that the theme is that this one, this son of man, came to be the suffering servant that we need him to be. And so Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And he doesn't just say that in the context of us responding to him in salvation. No, he says that in the context of his wanting his disciples to understand how they should follow him. And so just before this, in verses 43 and 44, Jesus said this, but it shall not be so among you that the Gentiles lord it over those that they lead. But you, my disciples, will be servant leaders. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. That is the spirit of Jesus Christ. And so too, how are we preparing for trials and suffering? First of all, we have to abide in John 15, 5, Jesus said to them, You are the vine, or I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Picture yourself as a branch who is tethered directly to the vine. No good can come out of you except that it is the overflow of the the." The, of what Jesus Christ is doing and by his grace. Nothing good can come out of you except for the fruit of the Spirit. And so we must stay tethered to Jesus Christ. Abide. And Jesus knows and he sympathizes with your weaknesses and your suffering. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens because he has already risen. Jesus, the Son of God, because that is true, that he is the risen and exalted Savior, seated at the right hand of majesty, so hold, hold fast your confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows your need, and he wants to be there for you.
He said, because of him, you can draw near to God and remain dependent upon him. Let's close in prayer. Then we'll have a final song and transition to taking the Lord's table together. Father, we respond in love and worship to you. We respond in faith because of what you have done. We don't take credit because we did nothing. The only thing we have brought to this table is our sin. Jesus brings everything else. He brings a perfect life. He brings the deity of God. He brings perfect humanity. He becomes the Messiah and the perfect intermediary between God and man. And he gave himself. His body literally died. His blood literally was shed for us to atone for sin, to propitiate for your just wrath against sin. And we thank you that death could not hold him and he rose again so that in him we can have forgiveness and perfect restoration to you, God. May we respond in love and worship and as a demonstration of that faith, help us respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.